Okay, we're looking at Mark chapter 5 today, but we're going to step back and look uh, briefly at the story of Jesus in the boat. Um, it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, Jesus, uh, after he finishes his preaching session uh, in the little cove there with uh, lots of people up on the bank, um, he gets into the boat and the Bible says, and they took him as he was, uh, leaving the crowd behind. Uh, they, they headed off across the lake and a furious squall arose. Um, this, this is called a sharkia, which is a windstorm that arises over the Sea of Galilee. It is, um, it's a, it's a, it is, it's caused by the geography. They're in a, you know, the, the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. It's in the Great Rift Valley. And uh, the wind comes in from the east and sweeps down into this gorge, which is the, 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 um, uh, the Jordan Valley, and, and whips across this lake and churns up the water in such a way that it can be very, very violent. Um, and uh, so as a result of, of that, these sailors, of course, were very, um, they were used to this. They knew all about this. And I'm sure as it began, they said, we got this, right? Um, but by the end of the situation, they realize we don't got this, right? We're about to go under. And when Peter says, wakes Jesus up and says, don't you care that we're about to die? Um, that, uh, I think that's a very important point that this situation takes Peter. It takes him to the very edge of his ability to control things. Doesn't God take us to the very edge of our ability to control things? Um, that's where God has us right where he wants us, right? Where we finally have to cry out to him. Because we have a tendency to be in control, right? Don't worry, God. I got this. I got this handled. My experience, this is my wheelhouse. I'll take care of it, Lord. Thank you very much. And we don't really bother to go to the Lord. Uh, but Jesus is asleep in the boat. Seems a little unbelievable to me that Jesus is asleep. Think of the size of the boat. We're not talking the Titanic here, right? We're talking about an itty-bitty fishing boat that's packed with 13 people, okay? And so there wasn't a whole lot of room. Jesus is asleep in the boat, and there's a windstorm going on. So you can imagine the boat is being tossed. The water is splashing into the boat. The disciples now are at a point of hysteria because they think they're about to die. Right? And Jesus is asleep in the boat. Okay? I think he's got one eye open and one eye closed. He's watching what's going on. Um, interestingly, in the teaching of Jesus, there was another person who was asleep. Do you remember back in Jesus' teaching in the, here in chapter 4? The farmer. The farmer. 
You remember that strange little parable of the parable of the scatterer of seeds. There is a man who scatters seed on the ground and then he goes to sleep. And he rises and he goes to sleep. What is he doing? He's waiting for growth. He's watching and he's observing and he's waiting to see how God will cause growth in the, in, in the field. All right? And that's what we do when we wait to see if God will cause growth in other people. We sow the seed and then we wait for God to cause growth. Now Jesus is asleep. He's just doing the same thing as the farmer. Later he will chide them on their lack of faith. Don't you have any faith? You see, they should have demonstrated growth, right? And so Jesus, in the midst of this situation, is looking for growth. Okay, you see how those two are connected? It's pretty cool, isn't it? And so um, this is really a powerful story. Um, there are some other connections that I wanted you to think about. And um, did you notice connections between uh between Jesus and Jonah. Did you read the book of Jonah? Yeah. Very good. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, I asked her to read it this past week. Um, let me borrow this. So I gave you this little paper comparing Jesus and Jonah. And the first point of comparison that I want to bring up is that Jesus is from Nazareth. And Jonah was, a, was from a town called Gath-Hefer. And Gath-Hefer is very close to Nazareth. They're from the same neck of the woods, about five kilometers away from one another. So Jesus, now, one thing you learn, and we learned this when we went to Israel, um, is that geography is really important to the people of Israel. They live in an itty-bitty country. Okay, and so where people come from and what happens in different places are related to one another over the course of the history of the people of Israel. And so if Jesus rises up as a prophet and there's another prophet that comes from the same neck of the woods, they're going to naturally relate those two prophets together. And Jesus and Jonah come from the same place. How do you spell that? Gath Heifer. It's on your. It's on the paper. Right at the top. Oh, okay. And if you look, you can see on the map where they are. But you have to have really good eyes. So I would encourage you, if you have your iPhone, click it three times and it'll turn into a magnifier and you can see it. So click the button three times. Really? If you have a button on the front of the phone, click the bottom button. If it's a newer phone, click the side button three times. And it'll turn into a magnifying glass. Is that through the camera? Mm-hmm. Oh. And it, you can see it very clearly if you do that. Now, this isn't the same as Goliath of Gath. Right? No, different Gath. Okay. This is Gath Heifer. Okay. So, interesting. So we have that connection. Then, Jesus and Jonah, if you begin to compare the stories, you see all these points of comparison. Um they both end up in a boat, right? They both end up asleep in a boat. Jonah goes down and goes to sleep, and he's asleep through the storm. 
the sailors come down and frantically wake, Jesus, wake Jonah up in the midst of the storm. And they ask him, why aren't you praying to your God? Right? And Jonah comes up and he says, the storm is because of me. So throw me into the water and that'll calm the storm. So Jonah, in essence, calms the storm, right? By being thrown into the water. And so we've got all these points of comparison between the two. Um, the very next scene in the book of Jonah is in the Gentile city of Nineveh. And so we have the, the prophet in the Gentile territory proclaiming the truth of the gospel in the midst of wickedness, right? Um, it's a message of judgment. Jesus is going to end up after this story among, in, on the Decapolis side of the sea, and he's going to be in Gentile territory in the midst of extreme wickedness and also performing acts of judgment. Okay, animals figure very prominently in both stories. Pigs in the story of Jesus and, and, and big fish <laughs> and, uh, and worms and a worm in the story of Jonah, right? And uh, so we see these, these commonalities between the story. So there is a connection between Jesus and Jonah. In Mark, it is implied. Mark never says anything. He never mentions Jonah's name. But through this story, we see this connection. In Matthew and Luke, the other synoptic gospels, they make it very explicit, right? So I listed the references there um, on those times when um, Jesus makes connection with Jonah. And so this connection between Jesus and Jonah is very important. So I wanted to give that to you. That's just a little bit for fun, for free. And now... Um, I want you to take a look at Psalm 107. Um, Psalm 107 is an interesting little psalm. And we're not going to take time to go through it because I want you to do it on your own. We'll talk about it next week. But there are several points of comparison in this psalm that connect to what's going on in the story of Mark. And Mark has a tendency sometimes to connect with the Old Testament and use it as a narrative outline for the telling of Jesus' story. And this psalm seems to connect in such a way that it can't be coincidence with some of the things that are happening in the gospel. And what turns you on to it, what focus, what, what, where, you, get, uh, where you're, you make the connection is in verse 23. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when, they, when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him 
in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Sound familiar? Sounds like a description of the story in Mark, doesn't it? Well, there are other points of comparison. So take time after, uh, afterwards to read through Psalm 107. I just kind of broke it up in different colors um, as I was analyzing the psalm and its, re- its repeated na- repetitive nature and refrains that kind of move through the story. So um, look at that later. Now, now let's move on to chapter 5. Yes. Here's the Son of God. Yep. Yep. I would encourage you to take a look at the the Greek word for faith there, um, or uh, for fear, the word for fear. There are a couple of words for fear. One is phobia, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the common word for fear, which is used throughout the Bible. This is kind of a very specific word, and it has to do with um, a sinful fear. Um, and so if you take a look at it, you'll see that it's a different kind of fear. Jesus is making, it's, he's not just saying, why are you afraid? Like all humans get afraid. I mean, I'd have been afraid in the storm, mm-hmm. right? There are other times that he doesn't rebuke them for being afraid, but this is a special kind of fear. It's a, it's a faithless fear. Okay. A fear that borders on, on sinfulness. Um, and we see that through the few times that it's used in the Bible. So. Again, there's so many debts and things and stuff in here. All right, so now we move on. They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Right? Um, This is the disciples asking this question. Who is this? Why would they ask that question? Even the wind and and the waves obey him. Psalm 87 or Psalm 89, verses 7 through 9. Let me read it to you. Jot down the reference. Psalm 89, 7 through 9. In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Now, don't you think that sailors on a sea that was, on a lake that was um, prone to, to misbehave would know this verse? I think they'd have it written on the front of the boat. I think they'd have it embroidered on the pillow they sleep on at night, right? God controls the raging sea. Jesus just controlled the raging sea. This was the... They've seen a lot of miracles up until this point, but this one really got them because this is where they lived. This was their wheelhouse. God brought them them personally to the edge. Okay, so they're beginning beginning to get a clearer picture of who Jesus is. All right, so now let's move on. Chapter five. Somebody read for us um, the piggy story. Somebody start in verse one, and my goodness, let's read through verse twenty. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, 
when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had, had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it uh, told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Okay. Okay, what strikes you about the story? What do you notice first of all? Should hit you in the head like a brick. That they're in Gentile territory where pigs are. Okay, pigs. Um, they're in Gentile territory. They are in a place called the Decapolis. They're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and they are by a cemetery. Okay? So this man is a Gentile, number one. He's a Gentile, unclean. He is demon-possessed, unclean, right? He lives in tombs, right? So he's in contact with dead bodies, unclean. Okay, this guy is the poster child for uncleanliness, all right? He really is. He is the most unclean person that you could conjure up as a character, all right? Multiple demon possession. Um, what do you notice about what happens that is different from all the other exorcisms that have happened so far in the book? Jesus talked to the demons and he always just threw them out. He didn't let them think. Exactly. Jesus always silenced the demons. This time he goes through this long interview process and he even grants them yeah. their requests. <laughs> and so you ask the question, what? Why is this situation different? Or how is this situation different from the situation 
that have transpired before? That's the important question, okay? Um, any ideas? Um, this individual seems to have more than one demon. It, it says if it's 2,000 pigs, it's a couple of thousand demons. Most of the other stories, it's a demon. Okay. This is, legion. This is multiple possession, okay? Um, Yeah, this demon that's speaking is speaking for a cohort of demons that are inside this man. So he's the spokesperson, the spokesdemon, the spokesdemon for the other demons. All right, now, um, there's, there's even a more obvious reason, and I think uh, we're going to see borne out later in, in another story in chapter 7, and that is that Jesus sometimes acts differently when he's alone with his disciples than when he is in public. So when Jesus is in public, he doesn't allow the demon to speak. But when Jesus is here alone with his disciples, because he seems to be alone with his disciples at this point, that he allows this demon to speak because what I think he's doing is he's teaching his disciples. He's pulling back the curtain on the spiritual world a little bit because he wants to teach them some things about the spiritual world and about the demonic world. He won't do that in public, but he does that with his disciples because, remember, the axiom. Those who are inside, everything gets explained. Those who are outside, they don't get all that information. Okay? And so Jesus is with his disciples, and I believe that he's teaching them, and so he's doing something that's out of the ordinary because he wants to instruct them. Okay, does that make sense? So, um, you know, I wouldn't build a doctrine around it, but that's what I think is going on here. Can I ask a really stupid question? I'll give you a really stupid answer. Okay. <laughs> How do we define a demon? How do we define a demon? Okay, that's a, that's a good question because... Um, you know, we don't know a lot about demon possession, right? Um, and we, I would imagine that there were things that happened in the ancient world that they, they attributed to demons that were maybe, maybe mental illness or things that we understand in a totally different way. And there are things that happened in our world that we attribute to sickness or mental illness or other things that could be very well demon act, demonic activity, right? And so how do we define? It's very difficult because it is a spiritual condition, right? We know that there are demons. We know that they are um, entities because there are multiple demons in this one. And we get some of this information. Some of the doctrine about demons are built on this very passage, Could be like right? Like you know, I would be slow to attribute all mental illness to, to demonic activity. Yeah. I think some is, but not all. And I think some mental, act, mental illness is attributed to demons when it's just, it's just mental illness. It's, Are the demons Satan's henchmen? Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, we know from the scriptures that there, are, there's a, there is a group of angels that <laughs> fell from heaven uh, that followed Satan and his rebellion against God. And... And those are the beings that were created by God but were perverted 
um, by, by Satan himself, right? And so they are in rebellion against God, and they are involved in this world, in the spiritual world, okay? We don't understand a lot about it, but Jesus gives us a little bit of information. So let's take a look at the passage and see what the passage teaches us. Kind of thinking too. He's in Gentile territory. Right now, yes, he sure is. So he's going to be trying to reach these folks. Mm-hmm. You know, the, apparently the Jews, you know, or the Pharisees and stuff aren't around, and so he's got a little bit more freedom to do what he needs to do. Yep, yep. There's some freedom here, right? Mm-hmm. Have, I, I remember Tom Gray many years ago talked about being in a uh, exorcism. Mm-hmm. And have you, being in Costa Rica, did you ever experience that, Dan? Yes. I mean, yeah. how, what was your feeling? I mean, I, I can't even, you know, I've never met one of these demon-possessed people. I met a woman one time that was trying to tell me about my grandparents. Uh, I mean, she was... It's like, weird. I mean, it's strange, but it's, it's real. And I think what we see in the Bible, my analysis of the Bible is... And the, the evidence we have in Scripture is that this kind of demonic activity has a tendency to happen. I think miracles, the supernatural, demonic activity tend to happen on the frontier, on the edge of where the kingdom of God is advancing, into, especially into places where it's never been before. So it's, we see it in the Gospels, right, as the kingdom is advancing. And we see it in in, in, in the book of Acts as the kingdom is, uh, is advancing. And we see it as well on the mission field in places where the kingdom of God is advancing. We see dreams and visions. We see, um, we see demonic activity. We see all of this. And so it's like not that it doesn't happen where the church is established. I think it does. But I think we, it is especially seen on like you think of it like a skirmish line like where the battle is raging on the edge of where the kingdom is advancing we see it more more vividly yeah but more than once there was a demon possessed person in the synagogue in church so in church you have people that are working from the dark side yeah so yes that's true and i think that's because of Education, yeah. you know, that there's more superstition, uh, in, you know, away from. Right. Yeah. And what's sad is a lot of those people working against are in the pulpit. <laughs> not, not, not here. Uh, right. Not here. You know. That's true. Uh-huh. So now I want to talk about the passage. So uh, is there a, there is a word that is repeated several times throughout this passage, four times to be exact. Did you notice a word that seems to be reported, that seems to be used here? Chains? No, but I want to talk about, chains are really important. I want to get back to chains. Okay. Beg. Beg. Uh The word beg. It's used four times in the passage. The first time it's used, who's begging? Legion is begging. What's he begging? I want to stay in the area. Next time, who's begging? Your, your demons want to 
Okay. When when who else is begging? The people beg Jesus to leave. And then the man and then, begs Jesus and then the man to let him come oh, with, him. Go with him. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have four cases of people begging, all right? And um, so let's think about it for a moment. If I were to draw a circle representing the area, we have Jesus in the area. Give me a beard. This is Jesus. Okay. And then we have the people. They're going to show up later. They're the people. And then we have the pigs. Those are the pigs. Curly tails. Okay. They're the pigs. And then we have the demon-possessed guy. Should he have horns on? Maybe. Okay, there he is. All right, now I want you to think about it for a moment. The guy who is possessed by demons begs Jesus, don't allow us to go. Let us stay in the area. Right? It wasn't the guy that was the demon. It's the demons within him. And then they beg Jesus, let us go into the pigs. Right? And then the people show up and they say, Jesus, please leave. Leave our area. And then this guy, now that he's cleansed and he's got a smile on his face, right? He begs Jesus, let me go with you. It's something about this area, okay? I think we're getting an indication here from this passage that demons can function within an area. There are demons that exist in a geographical area. And it makes sense, right? I mean, if we look at other, other evidence from the scriptures that there are demons, uh, if we look especially at the book of Daniel, you know, Daniel talks about the prince of Persia. Um, opposed me as I tried to come to you, Gabriel says, as he fights his way uh, to speak to Daniel in Babylon. But the prince of Persia has opposed me for 21 days. Prince of Persia, who's that? Well, the prince of Persia happens to be a a demonic presence that stands behind the geopolitical leader of uh, what we see on, on the nation, right? Hey! Yes. And so um, we have this indication that the demons tend to function, they're organized geographically. And um, it's very interesting um, when you have a chance to travel, especially if you're traveling and you're working in missions and things like that, you get a chance to feel presence of certain things. I remember the first time I went to Nicaragua from Costa Rica and you crossed over the border and you could feel this spirit of violence. I mean, there was a spiritual darkness that was palpable in this place. I think you can feel it with just one. 
I went to a party once, and it was given by Christian people, but the mother of the lady was a practicing witch, and she was at the party. Well, I didn't know who she was because I got there late, and she and I were in the kitchen together at, at one point, and I had this, I mean, it was like feeling. Right. I mean, it was just up and down my spine. Yeah, and if you can feel that individually, think about that collectively, right? If there's a sense of evil, there's a, a an openness to evil. And I think this place is an openly evil place. Look at what's going on with this man, right? He's possessed by a legion of demons. And to the point that the people of the community cannot control him. They tried to chain him. They tried to lock him up with fetters, and, and he would break free. And he lived among the tombs, and he cut himself in this terrible scene, right? Uh, but he was beyond human control. And then Jesus walks in. He's not even there 10 minutes, and he gains control of the situation with just his words. And these people are afraid of Jesus. We couldn't control him, and so we're afraid of you even more than him. We want you to leave. Right, so you see the see what's going on here, and so um, the pigs. The pigs are the big question, right? There are a couple of questions about the pigs. Number one, we say, okay, pigs are pigs are bad because Jews don't like pigs, but we're in Gentile territory, so they're open. They're allowed to eat bacon, right? Um, and so then you think, two thousand pigs—that's a lot of bacon. Right. A whole bunch of people because yeah. this is probably a communal herd. Yeah, that's what I thought. The first time I read this, I read herds man, and then I read again herds man, and I thought, these pigs belong to a lot of people, and they've got all these. And so Jesus, in effect, destroys the economy of yeah. this area. So Jesus, I believe, is acting in judgment against this place. Because of their wickedness. Just like Jonah in Nineveh. Mm -hmm. There is judgment that comes. Because of their wickedness. Don't think that God can only bring judgment on his people. God is God of the whole world. He brings judgment on people who, whether they're, whether they're followers of his or not. Right? He's bringing judgment on the wickedness and the evil that existed in this place. And I think that's why he destroys their economy. Yes. Yeah, but Jonah just warned them. He didn't destroy it. They, right. They finally came around. Well, that's only because they came around, or it would have been destruction. Uh, if I remember correctly, the people who were living over there in the Decapolis area were mostly retired Roman soldiers who had been given a piece of land over there as their uh, pension. What? You get a lot of Greeks over here. Mostly Greeks. Greeks, yeah, yeah. So we've got all that going on. the 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 final thing that I want to say about these guys is um, is this man here, um, Jesus. You would expect Jesus to say, "Come, follow me. Get in the boat, buddy. Let's go. Let's get out of this place. This place is a is a wreck." But what does he do? He leaves him there and he says, go to home to your family and to your friends and tell them the mercy that the Lord has had on you, right? And so this man then goes and he tells everybody, 
The next time we see Jesus in the Decapolis, he's going to be surrounded by 4,000 people who want to hear his word. It's a whole different reception. Kind of like the Samaritan woman. Thinking the same thing. Exactly. And so, again, we come back to this issue of darkness. How is darkness broken? How is spiritual darkness broken in a place? Well, I think it's broken by the word of a transformed life, by the testimony of a transformed life. That's what breaks the darkness. And Jesus leaves this man. So we see both Jesus' judgment, the killing of the pigs, and we see Jesus' mercy, the leaving of the man. Jesus doesn't write off the Decapolis. Jesus leaves this man to begin the work of breaking the power of darkness. Jesus breaks it first through his judgment. That affects people's hearts. And then this man begins to share the testimony of his changed life. By the time Jesus returns, there's a new openness. There's salvation that comes. But more often than not, he would tell people that he healed or cast out demons to be quiet. Right. Not to tell anybody. Right. It's the opposite. He tells them, go and tell everybody you know. Exactly. A question, a question that came up in our well group um, was, did the demons die with the pigs? No, I think they were released back into the area because that's what they had requested. They're eternal beings. Don't allow us to leave. Allow us to go into the pigs because the pigs are here. Right? Demons, those thousands of demons. Got released into the area. Yeah. That's scary. Well, he he has that other parable of he casts out a demon and then it's the house is swept clean. Mm-hmm. What happens if you don't fill that with a replacement of the word? Here is the guy, oh, I'm going to bring all my friends. Right. And let's move into this. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. I couldn't figure out why the demons wouldn't run away because they saw Jesus from afar, you know. Ran a long distance. Right. Could have just run the other way. But I guess, no, think about it, it's, their geographical area must have been quite small. And they knew there was nothing they could do. We don't really know, but there's something compelling about Jesus. They can't seem to stay hidden. They are, they're forced into the open. Whatever is hidden is disclosed around Jesus. Jesus brings it out. And it's like this confrontation is like inevitable when they get around him. And Again, we're seeing, we're getting a glimpse into the spiritual world through this picture, yeah, through this story. Is, yeah. They know who he is. They see him spiritually, not physically, right? So we haven't gotten to the meat of the passage, and we're down to one minute. <laughs> so we, we, we start into the next story, and the next story is such a powerful combination. And this is um, a Markin sandwich. And so I want to talk a little bit about that, and we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit next week. Um, we're probably getting behind. Do people just keep asking questions? I'm <laughs> crazy. But we're supposed to. We're looking at a face. I know, I know. Did you forget to record today, Dan? We're still recording. Oh, okay. So... Um, 
Okay, so this is the structure. Uh, we start with the Jairus story, right? And Jesus gets off of the boat, and he encounters this man who is the leader of the synagogue, and he comes and he bows down before Jesus, and he says, Jesus, come to my house. My daughter is dying. Um, I know that if you touch her, she'll be healed. Jesus says, sure, let's go to your house. They're on the way to the house, and they get rudely interrupted by this woman who reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. Jesus is walking along, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him, and they said, you're being pressed on every side by the crowd. What are you talking about who touched you, right? Are you kidding me, right? And Jesus says, no, no, power has gone out from me. And the woman comes and reveals herself and then tells her whole story, right? And then Jesus, um, she, was, she is healed. And after that, then we return to the Jairus story, okay? Um, and we go to the house and the, and the little girl is healed. And what happens here, this is called, we call this a Markin sandwich. Because Mark, this is, this is one of his favorite um, literary, I wouldn't say literary device, but it's an organizational structure, okay? And there are at least nine sandwiches throughout the book of Mark, okay? It's like a whole delicatessen <laughs> of spiritual knowledge. Um, and so what Mark does is he embeds a story within a story. So he'll start a story, and then he'll interrupt it with another story, and then come back to the original story. So he keeps doing this, and what he's doing by doing this, you can see the kind of classic chiastic design here. It's a simplified chiasm. And why he does it is because he's binding these two stories together. And he's saying, these two stories must be compared. The teaching that I'm trying to convey to you is in the comparison of these two stories, not in their treatment as individual stories. Okay? And so they're linked together. And uh, it's very strong linkage. Um, one, you know, you, the story of Jairus and the demoniac are linked together by juxtaposition. They're next to each other, okay? And they also require comparison. But this is a much stronger linkage, okay? And so there's some important things that need to be compared as you look at this story. So if we talk about the Jairus story and the story of the woman, we begin to see that there are some contrast between these two people. Let's just talk a little bit about who they are. They're very different, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Who is Jairus? A respected member of the community. Okay. Jairus is respected. He is religious. And accepted by the community. Accepted. What else? At least my translation refers to him as a ruler, which I don't know too often I've seen synagogue rulers. It was, it's a technical term. He's not a rabbi in that he's not like a teacher. He's more of the, the administrator. administrator. Okay. okay, so he's the administrative director of the synagogue. The NIV says leader. Mm -hmm. leader. Yeah. 
Yeah, so this is what we think. He's a man. It's also interesting that he's named. Mm -hmm. Okay, very unusual in Mark that a name is given. Usually, like the demoniac, we're always referring to people, the woman with the issue of blood, the Syrophoenician woman, the, the demoniac of Gadara. We've got all these, you know, the, the, um, the rich young ruler. There are all these people that we make up names for because we don't get names. Jairus gets a name, okay? Now, if we compare him to her, we've got some very obvious contrast, don't we? Mm -hmm. She is a woman. She is unnamed. She is not accepted. accepted. She is unclean, right? Yes. As opposed to a religious leader. She is not respected. She is rejected. So we have these two people that stand in stark contrast to one another. But now, take a minute. Uh, I know we're over time. But take a minute and compare their approach to Jesus. What does Jairus do? He asks. He yeah. comes and he asks. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Okay. He comes and asks, but he has the self-confidence to come and actually make a request of Jesus. Mm -hmm. She access. doesn't have the self-confidence. Uh, she doesn't have the access. She tries to steal a miracle from mm -hmm. Jesus, okay? Hoping that he wouldn't notice because didn't feel worthy enough to even approach him and ask him for one. But Jesus commended her for her faith when she did that, though. That's right. Yeah. And that's what I see through all this. I think the, the levels of faith, because then you go to Mark 6, and these people have no faith. Exactly. So we see clearly that both of these guys have faith. It doesn't matter who they are. It matters. Their, their faith is what matters. Both of them receive from Jesus, even though they're complete opposites. This guy, it appears, was apt for the kingdom of heaven. This woman appears totally unacceptable to the kingdom of heaven. But yet, because of their faith, they're equal. Didn't Jesus say in chapter 3, Who are my mother and my brothers? Those who will do the will of the Father are my mother and my brother and my sister and my mother, right? It doesn't matter your blood. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your social position. What matters is your faith. And both of them have an amazingly similar approach to Jesus. They both come. They both fall on the ground. They both make the same request to Jesus, and Jesus uh, heals them. Okay, he responds to them. Now, there is another level of comparison that we don't have time to talk about today, but we'll dig into it next week, okay? Um, but I want you to dig into chapter Six, because chapter six is just full, and you pointed to it. Uh, we end with the story in chapter six, verses one through seven, when Jesus goes back to Nazareth. And the very people you would expect to be the most faithful, his family and community in Nazareth, turn out not to have faith. So you see it in contrast here, right? They basically call him a bastard. 
Right, exactly. Who, not his father. That's right. We don't know who you're. You're the son of Mary. Exactly. You'd never call a Jew by his mother's name. You never call a Jew the son of Mary. They're always the son of Joseph. But they didn't consider him the son of Joseph. They all knew the story. The, the whispers around the birth of Jesus in Nazareth. That he was illegitimate. Jairus was going against some of the common thinking. I mean, being in the synagogue and accepting Jesus for his possible right. healing. So isn't it interesting, the people we would expect to have faith, the disciples in the boat, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? So then we come and we hit this demoniac, and he has faith, right? Let me go with you. Let me follow you. And then we hit Jairus, and he has faith. And then we hit this woman with the issue of blood, and she has faith. And then we go home to Nazareth, and there's no faith. But it's so the we would expect the family, we would expect the disciples, but so the people we expect to have faith don't have faith. The people we don't expect to have faith have faith. Yes, familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> so. We've the got people, all these things going on. The people that come to Jesus, though, are desperate. The people in Nazareth, they're not desperate. They should be. They're not. He says, if, if the miracles that I did in these other towns had been done in Sodom or Gomorrah, they would have been on their knees, you know, praising God. You people, you, you're going to find a level of hell somewhere Right. What's interesting about Nazareth, the word Nazareth, Nasser, is the Hebrew word for branch. These people in Nazareth were waiting for the branch. Their name, the name of their town was named for the, the coming branch, the branch or the shoot that comes up out of the stump of Jesse, the branch that comes out um, this is a messianic image. They were waiting for the Messiah. That was the name of their town. The Messiah was born in their midst and came to them. They didn't believe it. They blew it. All right, that's it.